0: Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.
1: Today, we're going to have a little bit of a different take on the show. I have a special guest, which I'm really honored to have on, or who I'm really honored to have on. Um, She's got an impressive resume. Her name is Dr. Natalie Newman, um, and she's a residency-trained, board-certified emergency physician who's been in practice for 22 years. So she's been on the front line of seeing all of the changes that have been coming down the pipe from guys, from you, you name it, from Obamacare back to HMOs, et cetera. Um, she graduated in 1991 uh, from California State University, and she has a degree in biological sciences. Uh, she attended the medical school at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio, on an Army scholarship, and she graduated um, in 1995. Um, she went into the ER medical residency, in my neck of the woods in New York at uh, North Shore University in Manhasset. And uh, her first assignment uh, on active duty after finishing her residency was at the Womack Army Medical Center in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, she was deployed to Bosnia and she was Chief of Emergency Department at Eagle Base in Tuzla, Bosnia. And she actually was one of the, well, was the only woman um, who was deployed over there. Um, she has taken care of Queen Noor um, of Jordan and she's got just the yeoman's work and I think someone who can explain to us different aspects of our healthcare system Um, she's now working in private practice and in ER at an urgent care so her journey has come I would think full circle from being, from training and I'm sure like I did old school training where you actually have to spend time overnight and you-don't-leave-until-it's-done kind of residency to being on her own and working in an urgent care and seeing the front line of health care. It's not so much the private practice doctors who get to see the people who are out on the front line and who need our help. It's the ur- people who show up in the urgent care. So I wanted to get her take on everything that's changed in our health care system. And one of the things that I'm really... Really impressed with is the fact that you're not just talking about it, but you have started an organization. And I'd love you you to tell our listeners more about how you made the transition to being an advocate for the doctors and the patient relationship. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Oh, I'm happy to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. George. And um, let's see, where's a good place to start? Uh, I have been practicing emergency medicine for 22 years, as you stated, and I did go through the training similar to yours where (laughs) there were no limitations at the time. So whenever I rotated through certain programs, such as internal medicine or surgery, we were required to be up all night and carry quite a few patients on our roster, and you didn't leave until you got done, just as you said. Um I do want to clarify one thing. Um I do emer- I typically work in emergency departments that are attached to hospitals. Mm-hmm. However, after 22 years I am winding down my career a little bit and um now working in urgent care. Although I'm currently being credentialed to work in another ER. I work primarily part-time now. Okay. So, I do both. I work in urgent care and I work in emergency departments still. Uh, so uh The group that you're speaking of called Physicians for Patient Protection, I actually did not form that organization that was formed by another physician, uh, but in in March of this year, March 2017, I joined in August of 2017. Gotcha. Okay, so I just wanted to make that clarification as well. And um, and actually happened upon a group when I was invited into the group. Um, and the changes I've seen over the years have, uh you know I love medicine I love the art of medicine I still love what I do I just happen to think that medicine has become more of a business than it has of a, a clinical entity that it was when I began it was mostly about the art of medicine it's always been a business however um it just seems more so now in my opinion and it's metric driven so patients and again this is my opinion and not the opinion of ppp or the physicians for patient protection Mm -hmm. that they're kind of moved to the system pretty rapidly so to give you an example when i'm working in emergency department there are certain metrics called door to dock time the time it takes for a patient to come into the er to be seen by a physician and then uh, the amount of time that they are in the emergency department there are tabs kept on that and then there are tabs kept on the number of patients who leave without being seen. Uh, there's just variations every doctor has certain numbers and they're kept on each physician those numbers and it places you more or less on a bell curve of where you fall with your colleagues and it can determine whether or not you stay in a job. So that pressure Sometimes takes precedence over the care to the patient when it should not mm-hmm. not something we want to do intentionally, but like anybody, if you don't want to lose your job, sometimes you conform and and I think that's what it's become today it 's just difficult to see that it's come that far. Physicians for patient protection began out of concern about the physician shortage today, and that gap being filled by. Mid-level providers—that is not a term that I made up, but a term that is typically used um, for billing purposes or identification purposes uh, with Medicare or certain, you know, governmental entities. Mm-hmm. But made up of uh, the mid-level practitioners are nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. Um, they can also be called be called allied health professionals. Um and the and this position gap, these the mid level providers are considered uh a option for replace for filling that gap. We disagree with that. We feel that to fill a physician gap, you have to use a physician. About eight thousand medical students this year who graduated from medical school did not match into a residency. For those who don't understand what match means, it means that once you graduate medical school, you find a specialty or a field that you would like to work in, you apply to a hospital to work in that particular field, and interview, and hopefully the hospital that you, in one of the hospitals you interview at will select you for that program, and you're a match. Mm-hmm. Um, 8,000 did not match. So... There are 8,000 potential physicians sitting out there working in places like Walmart, Target, Starbucks, still trying to get into a residency program. Our PPP's position is that, is why don't we use those potential physicians who have already graduated medical school and have their MD license, why can't we use them to fill the position gap in a more creative way um, in another position that may be created, where they can continue their training mm-hmm. until they can get into a residency, but still be able to work as a physician who supervises.
1: That we makes just sense. think that there are
0: other options to be creative. Number a t- uh, number two about the shortage. There's also an extremely severe nursing shortage. So as more of these nurses transfer into their becoming nurse practitioners, the bedside nurse. The, the population of bedside nurses shrinks. We're, working in a hospital, that the, that experience to me has been that some of the floors, when we admit patients to certain floors, are closed because there aren't enough nurses to care for them. So it's, it's um, it impacts medicine tremendously when we lose a, a valuable bedside nurse. Mm-hmm. Back in the day twenty something years ago, when I began practicing, I learned from these old season nurses who 've been practicing twenty five thirty years they knew their they knew their stuff, so to speak and but the practice of nursing and the practice of medicine are two very different things. medicine is medicine nursing is nursing, however, they complement each other, but one does not replace the other. it is our contingent we are it is our perspective, PPP's perspective that we're being replaced by these mid-level practitioners because they're cheaper to hire. That's our ultimate, one of our beliefs. And um, and it is. It is to save money be- for the hospitals and for the corporations. Uh, but in the long run, it doesn't save money because most, uh, many times a lot of patients who are being seen by These mid-level practitioners are sent to uh, sent to various physicians or consults inappropriately. They're given inappropriate referrals, um, or they're mismanaged. It is hard to document these instances because there's not many people keeping track. However, we are seeing those patients when we have to when we receive those patients. For instance, if I get them in the ER because they've been mismanaged or a colleague may see them in endocrinology or neurology and or particularly psychiatry where a patient is on too many psychiatric medications that could be deadly we just the the educational level is not the same as you know being a physician the training is hugely expensive and it's a very long process there is no shortcut to becoming a physician i don't want to sound elitist i do believe that both fields, nursing and medicine, are complementary, but we do work in the same environment, so they appear to be the same, but they are not the same, and that if one is going to practice as a physician, then one needs to go to medical school. I cannot practice as a nurse without going to nursing school. And I and so I we, we believe that there's only one path to being a physician, and that's the that's the path to med that's the path of medical school and that there should be no other option outside of that and the nurse practitioners have advanced education they have master's degrees and there are some programs that are doctorates many of these programs by the way are online programs maybe requiring anywhere from 500 to 1500 hours of clinical training that clinical training consists of shadowing which is basically working with a physician and observing what they do as opposed to residency where we are actually the ones having to manage the patient under close supervision and on a Mm tightrope. Residents are not left to practice unsupervised for a minimum of seven years, four years of medical school, three years. three to seven years of residency. So a minimum of seven years is required before we are allowed to actually manage a patient on our own. That is not the same with nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. The training is a lot less and then once they finish their training, they they can go and practice basically seeing patients without the level of clinical training we have had. That's concerning to us as well it may look like you're practicing medicine when you're not actually practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. And that's what's scary to me. Uh,
1: to as me to as well. PPT. You know, I know yeah. you said so much and such a mouthful. I want to take, you know, highlight right. some of these things that you said so people really understand this is not a joke. This is not something you can just wing and right. and do it online never touch a patient not do anatomy not do physiology in the same you know not understanding a disease process but you're on the front line writing prescriptions and they want to give you know reciprocity to writing narcotics and you just we, we need to tease this out so let's take a break and okay. come back and go through in more detail because i'm fascinated Absolutely. You're listening. thank you you're listening to medicine on call Good morning. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having a really important conversation with Dr. Natalie Newman, an emergency medicine physician and also a member of Physicians for Patient Protection. Am I saying that right? That's correct. Excellent. You know, before the break, at the beginning of your your synopsis of where we stand now, you said something that really blew my mind, that there are 8,000, you know, medical doctors out there who cannot practice my question is who's filling those spots are we getting doctors coming from foreign countries coming into the uh, residency programs and they're taking them in an, instead of american trained physicians why are there that many people out of a job if you can you answer that
0: well th- th- i received a statistic from the national registry uh, the matching of the matching program the NRMP right and it is a combined number so it is the number of medical students who are graduating beginning their who were who were to begin their PGY one year their first year of residency right some are um, students who have returned perhaps from a sabbatical maybe after medical school took one or two years off Mm -hmm. it is Canadian graduates and foreign medical graduates it's a combination okay um out of those numbers the majority are american students okay um and the, the problem is is that they, it's not that they just didn't match is that there are not enough residency spots which is a whole another subject that we could say for another <laughs> time um but there are way more medical schools than there are residency slots so it's almost as if it's designed for students to go to medical school knowing that a certain percentage will never, ever get into a residency, and the further, um, the amount of time spent sitting out there without a residency, the longer you are without a residency, the harder it is to get in, so if, you're, if you can't get into a residency in two years, the likelihood of you getting in the third year apply is very low, wow. and, and that's not their fault. They may be doing all the right things, there's just not enough slots, then it becomes more difficult as time goes on. We think that they should have other options. We have ideas, positions for patient protection that we think would work better.
1: I mean, that's an, an amazing idea. Imagine being seen by an MD in the ER. Well, this is another thing I have question about because I'm, I'm, I'm an independent doctor now. I don't have any really dealings with ERs anymore unless I'm doing locum tenens, which has been a mm-hmm. while. But right. who's the front line? I mean, when, when I left locum tenens positions, there were a lot of PAs calling consults to me, and not a lot of ER doctors, MDs. And mm-hmm. am I wrong? Has that been a change in the workforce there as well, where the PAs are the front line and the nurses are the front line, and then the physicians are overseers there as well?
0: It is. It has been happening, and that is one of the changes, the landscape uh, uh, that has changed that i don't like when i uh, n- n- physician's assistants have always been in er since i've begun mm-hmm. 22 years ago they were always there but at, matter of fact my f- first time i sutured anything which was a hand i was taught by a physician's assistant there's a place for physicians assistants there's a place for nurse practitioners However, in the ER, there was a section called the Fast Track. That was typically people that you would see, say, in an urgent care that are less emergent, mm-hmm. maybe a cut to the hand, um, maybe a sprained ankle, or a simple upper respiratory infection. These people t- were managed by the physician's assistants. And by and by, the way, when physicians assistants go to their programs, the PA programs, once they graduate and get their license, they fall under the auspices of the medical board, just as physicians do. Mm-hmm. Whatever state they practice in, they're under the medical board. Nurse practitioners remain under the nursing board. Okay. And there's a big difference. There's a big distinction with that that we can also talk about later. But yes, the the you're correct about the landscape changing regarding uh, the number of people who will call or the type of provider who will call you for consults. Mm-hmm. I remember when I would work with a PA and they would call a doctor and the doctor was adamant about speaking to another physician, they absolutely would not speak to the PA. That has changed and it was a bit elitist or discriminatory, but I understand the perspective because if you're ENT, if I'm calling about somebody with a complicated abscess in the back of their throat, Mm -hmm. you may ask me specific questions. I can answer those questions because I understand the pathophysiology of disease. Mid-levels don't have that depth of training and they don't have that depth of training when it comes to pharmacological management or medical or management requiring medication. As you know, when we train, you get that ad nauseum for obvious reasons because you're managing human beings with complex systems. So I understood why these physicians would demand to speak to another doctor because they would have a lot of questions before they either came in. And if they're going to come in and do surgery on somebody, they want to know what's going on in a little bit more detail other than this person has this disorder.
1: Yeah, or a and, sore throat, you know. I'm with you. I'm one of those doctors who's been called in. You're meticulous. In. Uh-huh.
0: You're meticulous. So my feeling is this. I They can call for a consult, but if a doctor asks to speak to another physician, that should be honored. Now, their reasons may vary, but we're talking about the patient. We should never, ever, ever forget that the patient is number one. And our mantra, Physicians for Patient Protection, is patients first, always. So if that doctor wants to speak to me, I will speak to that physician. Mm-hmm. I will not have an issue with that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now it's, um, more, it's more confrontational. Uh, the physician's assistants back then weren't as defensive I think as I've seen the change in emergency medicine it's one of the reasons I stopped supervising mid-level practitioners two years ago because it became unsafe I felt that many were practicing as if they were practicing unsupervised and they work under the physician's license at least in in, um, about 23 states 22 states they're allowed to practice unsupervised that is well Without the direct supervision of a physician. We are unhappy with that as well, physician, PPP. Uh, but that's been done. That's, that's something that's already done and completed. Um, but if we don't agree with it, we well, think they should always remain supervised by a physician because some patients appear simple who are not. And you've probably seen that as well in your specialty. So.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: that's, well, it has changed and because they are cheaper to hire more and more working in the emergency department what I never ever thought I would see is I never thought I would see a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant seeing a patient who was what we call a, prior, a priority one or two life-threatening emergency somebody coming in with a heart attack or a stroke being managed by these patients I had I remember working in one particular hospital and I was while I was suturing the patient's finger, the physician assistant was managing a patient with chest pain. And I said, There's something wrong with this picture because I'm the one with the most expertise and I'm the one who's doing the supervision. Why am I suturing the finger and this person managing the chest pain? It should be the opposite because the patients expect the best when they come to the ER, they expect the best care. It's not that these the mid-level predict, uh, practitioners, I'm going to start saying MLPs because that's a mouthful. It's not that they're not good at what they do. Everybody has a role on the healthcare care team, and those are vital roles, but they are roles that we must remain in. You have to stay in your lane because I can't do what everybody else does if I'm not trained in that particular field, but I can work alongside you so that we can do what's best for the patient. And I feel like that's changed. I feel as if we're being replaced and for, for cheaper labor, to be frank. And there are primary care physicians, as we speak today, who are losing jobs to nurse practitioners. Not because the work is necessarily better, but because medicine is a business. And what is the purpose of a business? To make a profit. How do you increase that profit? You hire cheaper labor. That's one of the... processes one can follow. This is no different. And we maintain that that's not good enough when you're talking about human beings. It's unacceptable. And so in the ER, yes, you do see quite a bit of that where you might have one or two doctors and more mid-levels working. Um, And I'm not in agreement with that either, but there is a shortage of physicians. So I say let's take those medical students that graduated, put them in a program that's not yet been developed yet, and use them. Utilize them. They still have more of the knowledge base than a nurse practitioner or PA would, there's no online medical school um, with the exception of Oceana Youth University. There is one online medical school, but they have to do their clinicals in a hospital setting and do re- and do a rotation just like we did as medical stu- medical students, well, so a question. that part is not replaceable. Yeah, I was surprised to find out there was one online medical <laughs> school, very surprised, and. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's legitimately accredited, and but a lot of their students have obviously a very difficult time getting into residencies in the United States, but there are residencies that have accepted some of those students. What? Not many, hardly at all, but there are some who have been successful in getting in because they do have that two last two years that we would have in medical school and they have to do the same thing we did when we trained traditionally. What's different is the first two years, theirs is online didactics, whereas ours was in a brick-and-mortar building.
1: Well, I have a question. Compare that to the training of a physician assistant. How long is their training? If ours is a minimum of seven, what's theirs?
0: You mean compared to a physician? Yeah. A PA? Yeah. The PA, uh, four years of college, two years of PA school. Um, physician, four years of college, four years of medical school, a minimum of three years of residency, up to seven years of residency. We, we're not not counting the college part. Just after college, yeah. you're comparing a minimum of seven years to two years.
1: So how can they be trained for neurology, neurosurgery? I mean, the two years doesn't get that. I mean, neurosurgeon is, what, ten years for that? Seven years, six years for ENT? How does Neuro- that neurosurgery
0: work? Neurosurgery can. Yeah, you're right.
1: I mean, no, I'm just saying there's no way that these guys with two years can end up – and they're ending up in the same thing that doctors do, subspecialties, surgical subs, um, GI, You know, things that are not – they're not family practice for the most part. They're coming into the specialty side, and they're doing – I mean, when I first came out of residency, I worked at a huge group. And the PA was called doctor. The patient didn't even know the patient PA was not a doctor. But they were doing everything, scoping the patient, spraying the patient. It took me, as any ENT, and I'm sure any other specialist, to know what I was looking at, the experience to know when I scoped somebody what I was looking for. I just don't think that that's the same thing. And a doctor coming in and signing off on the chart, but not performing the exam. I mean, this whole system is not kosher. I mean, it's like yep. this conveyor belt. You have the, right. the tech taking the vitals. You've got the nurse coming in and going over the thing with the patient. The doctor comes in after everybody does the work, looks it over, and then pronounces writes a prescription. No one's really seeing the patient. The, the, the How can I put it? The least experienced person is on the front line of care. It's bad enough when it's in office, but I can't even imagine how unsafe that might be in an ER setting.
0: Well, it. There, there. First of all, let me say this is not a bashing.
1: No, no, is it's thing, just, I'm not
0: bashing nurse practitioners. And neither I'm not am bashing I. MLP uh, or physicians assistants at all. Uh, like I said many times, there's a role for them on the healthcare team, and always has been. They were there before I even began my training, mm-hmm. and I've worked with excellent ones, particularly when I was in the army. Um, so I have no issue with them being working anywhere what patient what we have to understand is that the patients don't know who is treating them PPP believes in truth and advertising they have a right to know who's managing them yes there are people who look like they're doing what the doctor is doing so naturally the patient will assume that that is the physician and we and that's wrong that's just wrong because when there's a complication or an issue they have to know that it was done by someone who did not have as much training as a physician. No one's saying that anyone is better, but as you know, you and I are held accountable for the patient ultimately. Mm-hmm. I don't care who we work with. Whoever we work with, the doctor is always considered the head of that team and the one with the most expertise because we do have the most training and that is as it should be. So you cannot water it down. I, I. Honestly, from a personal standpoint, I feel like medicine is being watered down in that sense. Because when you're talking about gastroenterology, no, there's no residency for physicians assistants or nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners and the physicians assistants may do some shadowing mm-hmm. or rotating through a doctor's office, a gastroenterologist's office, and work with them on certain procedures and get more extensive training on the job. I see it more like an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm and then they can go and practice independently, some of them. Now, PAs have not been able to practice independently, mainly because two years is difficult for that to get approved, and their organization, their umbrella organization is not in agreement with that. Their belief system still is, you must work under the supervision of a physician. If you want to practice independently, then you are not part of this organization for okay. physician's assistance. Nurse practitioner is a whole different other animal and the nurse practitioner the so it's the AANP, I forgot exactly what the acronym stands for but it's an umbrella organization for the nurse practitioners They're extremely powerful, they're a lobby and they're extremely powerful mm-hmm. and they do believe that the nurse practitioners can work independently after a certain amount of time and, go, and they can go out and open their own office call themselves dermatologists or pediatrician using hijacking medical terms, instead of saying a pediatric nurse practitioner, they're saying pediatrician.
1: That's not right.
0: It's not right, it's it's dishonest and it's not truth in advertising. When PPP sees these ads, we contact them directly and we tell them you either change that or we will report you because that is misleading. It, it depends from state to state if it's illegal, and um, they they cannot misrepresent themselves. In most states, that is illegal. You cannot misrepresent yourself as a physician. But if you don't have to say I'm a physician, you can just say I'm a dermatologist, and and they'll and that doesn't mean they're saying they're physicians. They may say a tiny little writing, nurse practitioner. Wow. But most people don't know what a nurse practitioner is. So they assume a dermatologist that must be a doctor and they go to that office and that's and we have a huge issue with that and as an aside I just want to um state that there is a bill in the house the truth in advertising bill that was sponsored by Larry Bouchon who's a Republican uh congressman from Indiana and PPP is in full support of that bill. He is a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he believes that a patient has a right to know who's treating them, and it's as simple as that, and we're in agreement with that. So that's actually being addressed. He wants that nationwide, that everybody be identified on the healthcare care team by a badge of who they are so the patient knows, and there's no guessing.
1: Makes sense to me.
0: Yes, and, and, and it's, but that didn't used to be the case. We didn't have to do that. People were truthful when... Back 20-something years ago when I practiced, if a patient called a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner or a doctor, they corrected and They would say, I'm not the physician, I'm the nurse practitioner. Now, they're not doing that. They're allowing the patient to think that that's who they are as, or stating, I can do what a physician can do. And I'm saying, you can't do what I can do because you haven't had my training. Okay. You can't do what I can do, but you look like you can do what I can do but you're not doing what I've been trained to do, and that's misleading.
1: Well, so you said yes. So. I
0: have I have the same problem you do with them working in specialties independently. But the doctors are complicit in that as well because they allow this to happen when they're not directly they're supervising this and they're not clarifying to the patient and saying this is the nurse practitioner who is working with me. Um. And so, patient goes into surgery thinking that the doc's doing the surgery when it. Uh, part of the surgery when it's actually a mid-level practitioner, and that's dishonest. But doctors are partially complicit for the situation we're in today. It's not just uh, them being aggressive; the MLPs. it's us allowing it to happen for many reasons.
1: Well, I think we need to also look at the the hospitals, and yeah. and share and peer review. I, I mean, I thank goodness I'm not on a, a staff where I have to take order from a medical executive committee, but Their power is tremendous. And if you, and I actually left the uh, staff of a hospital because I felt that my license was at risk. They were admitting, allowing a call center to admit ENT patients from various hospitals across the state without Mm -hmm. contacting the doctor on call. So you were in the position of being on the hook to see a patient that may be outside of your scope of practice. And because uh of MTALA, if you don't see the person, hey, you're on up the creek. But right. And then once you see the person, let's say it's an airway emergency, you have to stabilize the patient and find another doctor and another hospital to accept them. Good luck with that. I just saw that was just crazy, and I left. But I can imagine if you had a question about a nurse, nurse practitioner, or something going on in your hospital where you felt, hey, this is not right, who could you go to? You would probably be seen as a a, you know, a problem, a peer review would be you know your hostile work environment. I can see all sorts of things that would work against you for speaking up. So I think it's a combination of it's just easier to keep your head down, not get it shot off, and whoever has the money, whoever right. controls the pocketbook has the power. This is the mistake I believe that doctors have made. Yeah becoming an employee, of an entity that could give a damn. all they want is your labor. They want the, the cachet of having you on staff, but they don't want to treat you like a, a professional. Now it's gotten completely out of control. And the patients are the one, as you said, are on the hook. They don't know. And the patient just wants to come in and get better. That's all they want. But I've actually talked to nurses on the other side. You know, the old school nurses, the ones that we learned yeah. from? They left the profession. I, I don't feel safe. I don't want this outside of my comfort zone. That's right. I mean, they were in the... ICU for years and years and being asked to put in lines and take care of patients they became the intensivist that's crazy and they walked into private practice to do other things in ambulatory surgery centers now that's a loss to the patient you know do you want to someone who's been trained for two years to put in a swan gans which is a huge catheter you know you have a really sick complicated patient without a doctor in there I mean that's crazy
0: well, you know what's even more crazy is that there are actually nurse practitioners managing children in the pediatric intensive care unit. What? They're pediatric <laughs> intensive care unit nurse practitioners.
1: Oh, my God. Not and a neonatologist?
0: And there are ICUs that are fully managed by mid-level practitioners. It pisses me off. I'll be frank. Because... The patients don't know this. If the patient's knew, if you have a child and, you, and you're and you in the ICU, it doesn't mean they're not providing care, but if you have one doctor, two doctors, it's not like a ratio. It's not like one doctor to one nurse practitioner and they're being supervised. Mm-hmm. They may all be answering to one physician, but that physician may not actually be present. The other thing that annoys me is that there, because I'm in a forum, a closed forum, of another organization. I do have residents who speak to me and they complain in emergency medicine that the mid-levels are, and the nurse practitioners and PAs are being given procedures over them. Like what? they have to compete to do procedures. So you went to a surgical specialty. So there's gas and gas of procedures that you have to learn before you can go out and practice as an ENT doc. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, imagine if you were that resident and you have to compete with a nurse practitioner and a PA for the same procedure when you're the one who's going to be supervising some of them when you graduate. I was incensed when I learned this from the residents. They're like, I have to fight for a procedure because they're giving them all the way to the MLPs. I said, how is that possible? What does your program director say about this? They say nothing. What? When it's become the norm, it looks like the norm when it's wrong. And I don't even know where to begin. We're Right now, we're just trying to fight for the patient so that the patient knows who's treating them and that they get managed by the appropriate people in the right way and it's the healthcare team. This is a whole other animal and it just feels like there is an octopus with a bunch of tentacles out there and it bothers me that the patients don't know. When I speak about it to my family and friends, they're shocked because they said well how did it get to this point point?" and I said well doctors are parts that complicit in this and I think burnout is a big part and when the mid levels were always willing to step up and do things when we got tired and they started taking over these procedures and we allowed it to happen and I'm and I saw it happening in ER I actually did work in one hospital Now, I want to clarify, I've never actually been officially fired, (laughs) however, if you get taken off the schedule, it amounts to the same thing, correct? Yeah. And I worked in one hospital where I was actually on a committee, and my job was to change the guidelines for physician's assistance in that hospital. When I came into the hospital, an incident had happened right before I arrived as a new physician working there, that... A PA had attempted to do a spinal tap on a three-week-old baby in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. He couldn't get the tap. He called the patient doctor, a pediatrician in the community, to come in and do the tap. Instead of going to the ER doc who's supposed to be supervising him in that ER, he actually called the pediatrician. What? And that, he should have gone to the ER doc. And that may have been because he didn't want the doc to know that he didn't know what he was doing. That happens, too, when you're not being honest with your supervising physician because you don't want to look stupid or that you don't know what you're doing. So he called this pediatrician. The pediatrician asked the right question. Why are you doing the TAP? Why Mm -hmm. is the physician doing the TAP? And the DA said, because I can do it. And that just blew everything sky high because the pediatrician raised holy as you know, oh. I'll leave the four-letter word. Out. I can imagine. And the hospital said, and it turned out that in their bylaws, it was very clear that PAs were not allowed to do procedures on infants that young. So they were violating their own bylaws when this when this PA was doing it, and they didn't even know it because how many of us know the bylaws back oh. and forth?
1: Yeah, those bylaws are long. It's a tome.
0: It's, a, it's considered oh, yeah. like a state law. It is not a joke, and it was. And so the director, sweating bullets asked if anyone wanted to be on a committee, and I said, I want to be on it. Um, So I was on it, and we, and the committee spoke about the boundaries, and what I did was I extended their procedural uh, skills where they could do more suturing, maybe some more complex suturing with the close supervision of a doctor. They would have to be signed off after so many Mm -hmm. uh, many processes, um, and so on. And um, then I took it back to my department and got and and submitted the proposal to all of my colleagues and to the mid-levels who work there and said, give me any of your feedback and let me know what you may disagree with so we can discuss it nobody really had a big issue with what i had proposed so when the committee met we voted and it was changed and placed into the hospital bylaws then a new company company came in new er group came in took over the er from the group that i had been working in and they started to practice the way that was not following the bylaws. And so the PAs were not allowed to pick up patients who were level one and two, critical patients. They were absolutely not. They could pick up level threes, um, but they had to present them to a physician. They could pick up four and five patients, which are like the simple, easy patients. They could present the patient to the doctor if they felt necessary, but the doctor had to review that chart and sign it before they left for home. And that's how it was set up. When I had a PA, when I was working, she picked up a patient in diabetic ketoacidosis, huh. a deadly condition, yep. without telling me, and then mismanaged the patient, which could have resulted in the patient's brain swelling and killing them. When she presented the patient to me, who I did not know was in the emergency department, I asked her, why did you pick up that patient when you know you're not supposed to pick up level one? And she answered me, um, that's why I'm ta- talking to you about the patient. And she uh. got snarky. So I just took the chart out of her hand and I went and managed the patient. I'm not going to get into an argument because she's working under my license. If that patient had died, I would have been answering for it as well as her. She was a year out of PA school. Wow. And so then I got talked to by the regional director of the group I worked for who said we all have to get along and blah, blah, blah. And I frankly told him, I said, you're a physician like I am and you know that she shouldn't be managing patients like that and it's in the bylaws the next week I was off the schedule, never heard from them again. <laughs> that was it.
1: <laughs> you know and what, it's a blessing because you might be staring at something else if you had stayed in that that position, I think. You know, it's not healthy.
0: Oh, well, I put them on, I like them on white on rights. It doesn't matter what the supervision says. You can lecture me all day long. I work under my own license and I feel that way when I work in any ER. When I get hired, I tell them, patients first, documentation second, C third. <laughs> That's how I work. And if a PA or a mid-level is going to work with me, I'm on you like white on rice. And if you don't like it, then you have to go work with another physician. The powers that be can come and talk to me. It's not going to change my practice. I tell them the same thing. Well, that makes some directors uncomfortable, but they understand that I'm following it. I've never had a peer review. I have never had a risk management case. I've never had any issue in a hospital with my clinical skills any issues may have been because i hurt someone's feelings because i was working as a physician as far as i'm concerned when i'm in the emergency department all of those patients are my patients even if there are other doctors working because if they're not available i have to step in i love it. maybe that doctor had to go do something Um, maybe they're in the cafeteria getting something to eat and one of their patients is crashing well the doctor who's there has to take over that patient has to be cared for by somebody and that would be the person up with the highest level of expertise which would be me so yes i'm going to be on you like white on rice until i see that you know what you're doing but you're going to tell me about those patients because that's your job so that we are in agreement on how the patient's being managed because the patient's no less and all the people who are making these new rules now that are allowing them to practice this way i can guarantee you that the corporate powers that be all have physicians as their primary provider. They don't have a nurse practitioner or a PA. But the legislators who are passing these laws and allowing this to happen do not all have physicians as their care, you know, the people caring for them and their family, which is very hypocritical.
1: It's not unusual. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine On call. Call. Good morning. Welcome. I'm sorry. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Um, Before the break, you said a lot of things that I want to just, because we only have 10 minutes left, but I definitely want to go over a little bit more detail. Who has, if a nurse practitioner or nursing uh, mid-level takes care of a patient and there's a bad outcome, we know the PAs are under the medical license. What happens to the nurses if something happens untoward? Who's responsible? Will they get sued or will the doctor get sued?
0: Um, well, typically a lawyer, it, you sue whoever is in the chain of that patient's care, and then you can be dropped later if you're de- determined not to really be uh, culpable. That's kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. So everybody who saw that patient from the time they hit the door until the patient died or the incident happened and is get sued. That's generally how it works so yes but if you're supervising yes we're part of that lawsuit and I've not been part of a lawsuit like that personally although I was told by an attorney when I was called to testify for for a patient who was assaulted um, and I said I never saw the patient my PA saw that patient and I documented clearly that I never saw or evaluated the patient uh, he said it doesn't matter you're the MD on the chart wow. and that's how they look at it you are the MD on the chart we're going to go after you also and this was just as a witness this is just me being a witness not even being sued. so that is the that is the perspective and um i did want to clarify something um about that i heard you guys speaking about a little bit um when you talk about the MLPs going to the rural areas, mm-hmm. PPP has found that that's actually not true. They work in urban and suburban areas just like most physicians do. We have a lot of these statistics, which um, I can get to you or one of my colleagues can get to you um, if, when you speak to them in the future uh, to give you these numbers. But that's, that's falsity. They are not working more in the rural areas compared to physicians. We're out there, too. I'm a doc who works primarily in rural areas, and I'm ER. We're out there.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It's just
0: Mm -hmm. misleading because they're saying, well, doctors don't want to work out there. They don't get to pay the same money. Mm -hmm. I negotiate my pay. If they can pay a CEO, they can pay me. Mm -hmm. Um, And you go where there's a need, where I'm getting credential right now, Mm -hmm. is in a rural hospital. That's doctor only. There are no Mm mid-levels at that particular hospital. So it's misleading to say that. And and it makes them look more altruistic that that's where they're going when nobody else wants to go there. They are there in primary care, and that part is true, because we have a shortage of primary care physicians. But I'm saying they're not physicians, that if you want to fill the gap, fill it with a physician and get one of those 8,000 medical students, put them in the rural area under the supervision of a primary care doctor in the region, and let them take care of the patient.
1: That would supervised. be an amazing thing for patients out there instead of depending on things like telemedicine
0: and right. you know
1: it's just whatever they can do to kind of just do the minimum while they you know and i 'm talking about the medical system at this point because it seems to have shifted towards what can we get away with what's the minimum that we need to right. do to You're charge right. out the yin yang and it's just not the value the isn't shortcut. there exactly the
0: shortcut, and I said there's no shortcut. From being a physician, there's no shortcut. If you take a shortcut, the patient gets cut short. Yeah. And do you want that to be your family member? And if that's if you're okay with that, you have that choice. There are people who prefer to see nurse practitioners. That's their choice. All we're saying is let them know their options. Okay. But don't say that you're me and you can do what I can. What that I what I can do. Don't do that. That's dishonest because you can't do what I can do. You don't have the depth of training that I have. And that's that's not being arrogant. That's just a fact. And there's a reason we're trained at that level. I think you said... We have a huge responsibility. The patients... We're in America. There's a reason we have the best medicine in the world because we did not settle for less. We raised our standard of care in the early 1900s when the AMA hired Mr. Doctor Flexner to do a, a study on the best medical schools in the nation, so that we could have a standardized system to up the skills of physicians. The Flexner Report, mm-hmm. and we did that. And our model was Johns Hopkins Hospital. That's who he used as the model, and that's what all these all the medical schools are based on. And and they did that because they wanted standardization, so that the quality of care would be better, and it worked. There are a lot of inventions that have been happening in medicine as a result from scientists and physicians. There's a lot of good. We do have the best medicine in the world. And now you want to take shortcuts and why, why try to fix something that's not broken in that sense? And, and my other issue is just don't try to fill a physician gap with a non-physician. Stop talking about that when there are physicians out there sitting, potential physicians, with no residency. Open up more residency so we can get those doctors out there and fill that gap with them. They're there. And then let the nurses fill the nursing shortage.
1: What is the AMA That's- saying about this? Because this is like no-brainer. The AMA
0: you- has said that they should not ever be unsupervised. They've made a bold stance that nurse practitioners must not ever practice unsupervised. Once you're unsupervised, you're out there, as far as we are concerned, practicing medicine without a license because you're under the nursing board. The nursing board does not hold them accountable in the same way the medical board does. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Nursing board is more lax. That's why the nurses don't want to be under the medical board because it is incredibly strict. So they say we're practicing advanced nursing but yet you open up a practice saying that you're a dermatologist and that you did residency and that you have your board certification and this practice. Hijacking medical terms that doctors use, but you're a nurse practitioner practicing advanced nursing. That is not truth in advertising. That is lying and that is being intentionally misleading. And that's wrong. And that's what PPP is fighting. Say, be proud that you're a nurse. Say that you're a nurse and use the appropriate language that identifies you as a nurse and let the patient make the decision.
1: I think you said something again that's really important. And it's not about, again, it's not about bashing anybody. It's about, as, I, as you said, truth in advertising and letting patients know what the difference is so that they can make an informed choice. And I agree with you. There will be people who want to do telemedicine. There will be people who want to see a nurse practitioner who don't mind seeing a PA want it. But that's right. what we really need to, you know, you, are you the only professional group that's taking this tact on this? Because, I, again, I'm not an AMA member, but I haven't heard a thing from them in terms of scope of practice and, and what's going on on the front line.
0: Oh no, there's a larger group than us called Physicians Working Together. Uh, when we went to, when I, where I met you in D.C., they were there also. And we work in, um, they've been around longer than us. And I can't speak on their group because I'm not a member of that, although we work because our group is new. Mm-hmm. But th- we were there together to speak about that topic and they are a much bigger group than us. We have about 4,000 in our group. Uh, they have way more thousands than that. and. We are in agreement with the Truth in Advertising Bill. We support that. And we don't believe that mid-level should be uns- practicing unsupervised. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are other groups that existed before us that are also fighting this. We're, uh, our attack is we are, um, and, they're, and they're aggressive. So it, it's um very similar. Um, but our philosophies may vary as far as our ultimate goals and the type of issues we address but right now we're both addressing this issue because it's, um, we fight bills that are put up on, on the, in the legislature where they're proposing um, to practice unsupervised. I don't like the word independent. Independent suggests that you're dependent on me and now you want to be independent. Mm-hmm. I say no, you're supervised by me and you want to be unsupervised to do your own thing so that no one can see what you're doing. And we don't want unsupervised practice. We're against it.
1: On that note, so, we're coming to the end of the show, and I have to have you back on because this is such an important topic. I think we just scratched the surface. Yes. Is there a way that people can contact you or your organization, that patients can get involved and actually be educated? Is there is there something like that that patients should know about?
0: Well, we are developing a website at this point. We do have a handout that we give um, to individuals in person, called know your doctor and it explains all the educational levels of different fields including optometry, podiatry, uh, naturopathy, uh, PA, nurse practitioner, physicians. It, it summarizes all of that but we are because we're a fledgling organization we don't yet have a website. We are developing it and then we will promote it.
1: Well when um, I want to have you back on so that we can absolutely as every step as this continues to grow and thank you so much for your time. You're just Thank a you blessing. Thank you
0: for inviting me, and you have a nice day.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Okay. Bye bye. Bye
1: bye. Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk event.